Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. So we're going to look at um, Revelation chapter 5, if you've got a, got a Bible, which hopefully you have, and uh, Phil very helpfully uh, puts those out for us on a Saturday, so there's uh, no excuse not having it in front of you. But we're going to look at uh, those verses together just for a few minutes now, um, uh, since we're not as, under as much time pressure as we normally are, which is nice. Um, so we're going to look at those verses, uh, Revelation chapter 5. Um, but before we do that, it is obviously getting near Christmas. And as you, those of you who know me well will know that it's about now that I begin to mention it. Um, obviously, it's not quite as appropriate to mention it before remembrance. Uh, however, um, I will mention it. It isn't long till Christmas. And if you haven't gone for the savings scheme to get me a big present, it's not too late to sign up and put aside some money every month. Um, the bigger and more expensive, the better. That's my love language, as I remind you, every single year. And every single year... It, goes on deaf ears, but there we are. Um, <laughs> but the person I think I'm most like is Andrea's nan when it comes to Christmas. Uh, obviously, we're not related by blood, and, um, and she too is in glory. Um, but me and her had a similar um, uh, love for Christmas. And, and Andrea's nan was a wonderful woman, but she had a, a lovely sort of childlike way with her when it came to Christmas. And I'm reliably informed that every single year, regardless of how old she was or what decade she found herself in, she would always do the same thing every single year, tear off the corner of every single gift she was about to receive to see what she was going to get before she actually opened it. And I think that is a wonderful approach to Christmas. So when you get me an expensive gift, don't wrap it too tightly or in that, that foil stuff you can't tear because I want to turn the corner off. But actually, when it comes to Christmas and presents, isn't that the kind of thing you want to do when you're a kid? Creep downstairs at 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning, I speak from experience, and go down under the tree, find the biggest present or the smallest present so you don't get into trouble with, any, with your mum or your dad. And, uh, and you just tear a bit away and you think, Oh, I wonder what that is. And you look and you think, oh, I think it's this. It's the new Lego thing or it's a new Transformer. Um, I remember once seeing a TV with my name on it downstairs. I was so excited until I discovered it was black and white. And I was gutted because I thought, all my friends, this is in the 80s. Not everyone had a color telly in the 80s, even in the 80s. But all my friends had a color TV and it was ginormous. And I thought, it's black and white. It's rubbish. <laughs> but I had to pretend I was happy. But that glimpse of what's coming is enough to just get you excited and ready for the day. And actually, in a way, God's word is a bit like that. When it comes to thinking of the big things, what's happening in the heavenly realms, because we are so small-minded as human beings, aren't we? We think only of the bit in front of me. I can see only all of you, and much like a child that thinks their teacher doesn't exist when they can't see him in the classroom. Um, actually, there's a whole world around us, isn't there? But more than that, there's a whole heavenly realm around us. It's not just this earth and then the universe around it, which I'm told is kind of big. You've got the heavenly realms, which is even bigger, and God is over all of it. And actually... We can't comprehend the glory of God and the majesty of heaven. But just sometimes in the Bible we get almost like a little corner torn off of uh, the reality of the heavenly realms. We get to peek into something wonderful that's going to be ours, that is ours. We get to go there. We get to be there one day. And we look at those of us that have, that have gone home, as we say as Christians, have gone to glory. And we don't envy them in that sense, but we kind of envy them at the same time. We think you get, to, you get to be with God. You get to be in that heavenly realm. You get to see some of that glory. How wonderful a moment that is for the Christian believer. The word of God is like that. We get in various places a corner torn off the reality of life. 
and we get to see the glory of God, the coming glory uh, that we will get to enjoy, much like a Christmas present, but not yet. It's got our name on it. But one day, when we awake from our sleep of death, we will walk into glory and see God in all of his majesty. Revelation chapter 5, then, uh, amongst much of Revelation, is really a peek into the glory of God. And I think it's wonderful because it is just almost like the corner of the page has been pulled back and we get to see what's coming. We won't see all of it because our heads would explode. But this passage, which is strange, and Ahindra uh, read to us, is strange and wonderful and exciting and awe-inspiring and also kind of frightening at the same time, is given to us. So that we can walk firmly and surely with perseverance as we follow Jesus Christ. It's so easy to get bogged down with the brokenness and the darkness and the sin of our lives and the world. And to think this is it. Even Christians can think this is as good as it gets. But then we peel back the corner of reality and we read this is as good as it's going to get. And it's going to be the best ever. Your worst day in heaven, if there is such a thing, will be better than the best day on earth. Nothing will ever compete with even a second in glory. And so we get to uh, these passages, these verses in Romans, not Romans, hang on, Revelation, begins with an R, uh, Revelation chapter 5. And we see this wonderful picture of the throne of God the Father. God the Father is seated on his throne in heaven, surrounded by glory and majesty. Chapter 4 gives us a detail of what actually it looks like, what it looked like for John as he's called up to heaven. It said, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place. At, at once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne were seven lamps, lamps were ablazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered in eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine being called up? This is just some guy, just like us, John. He gets called up into heaven. He sees this wonderful image, these weird creatures, these 24 elders, throwing their crowns almost every second at the feet of the glory and the majesty of God the Father. Can you imagine that scene? And the truth is, no, you can't. 
because each one of us has a very small mind. Even the most clever one amongst us cannot comprehend the glory of this scene, this throne room of God. We shrink it down to a tiny little room with one little chair. We can't imagine how bright, how loud, how majestic it would have been. Whatever you think you see, times it by a million, and you won't even come close to how glorious and majestic this scene that John gets to see is. And just like John, we're invited up through his vision to the heavens to see this vision of God. This particular section um, comes after the seven letters to the seven churches, which is, of course, uh, a message for all churches. And after that, we get this section that goes on for quite a few chapters, which is titled, Things That Shall Take Place After This. Having received these letters to these seven churches, to all of God's church, many of which are quite challenging for us, he's then told, this is what will happen next. This is what's about to take place. And what happens next in the book of Revelation, leading up to the end of all history, is Christ's defense of his church and the destruction and judgment of his enemies. Now, God is a consuming fire. He's gracious, but he will punish sin and punish those that stand against him. What we read, we read on from chapter 5 is the future outworking, which started at the victory of the cross And we'll watch it in the book of Revelation until its consummation of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of human history. But right in the middle of chapter 5, we get this really weird moment. God the Father is seated there and he holds out a scroll with seven seals with writing at the front and the back. And then there's a uh, a great commotion in heaven as they look for someone who is worthy enough to open it. And there's a great sadness that sweeps over everybody as they look in heaven and they look on earth. And no one is found worthy enough to take this scroll, to approach the Father, take the scroll and open every one of those seven seals. What's in this scroll? Well, essentially, this is God's purposes for the rest of human history and beyond. This scroll is what God is going to do to the end of all things and into eternity. And as each seal is opened, the vision becomes a reality. Those future events begin to take place, we see prophetically in the future. And God's enemies, one by one, are dealt with. Justice is finally served. His kingdom finally comes. Jesus is the only one in heaven and on all of earth who is found to be worthy to approach the Father, take the scroll, and open it. And we see with John the majesty of God in that moment. And like him, we ought to tremble at its sight. This is a huge uh, passage, a huge part of the book of Revelation, and we literally could spend hours on it. We could, spend, and we could write many, many books on it, and many have. So all I want to do is draw out just five themes Uh, from this passage that we've seen today. And the first theme uh, is the theme of hope. Because as that scroll is held out by God the Father in verse 2, they soon discover no one can open it. They look on heaven and on earth. Women who have ever lived, not one of them was worthy enough to open the scroll. And then in verse 3, John weeps. Verse 4 says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or even look Inside, I added the word even. Look inside. He cries because this scroll represents everything God is about to do. And for just a second, perhaps it seemed like God's plans would remain just that, his plans. 
until Christ, the line of the tribe of Judah, as he's described, arrives and does it. He seems hopeless until verse 5. Verse 5, then the one of the elders said to me, do not weep. In the English Standard Version, which I think is, is a bit more literal, it says, weep no more. Weep no more. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Weep no more. And then it leads us to our second theme, which is of worthiness. There's such emphasis on how worthy Jesus is to take that scroll. This is the same Jesus who was considered unworthy, a blasphemer who they nailed to a cross just a short time before, who they spat at, laughed at, rejected, who everyone thought was worse and dung. And here he is, elevated to the highest of heights, the only one able to take the scroll from his father and look inside and open it. Look at that uh, chapter that I just read, chapter 4. We've got these strange beings who are majestic in their own special way, these 24 elders who are glorious in their own special way. If they walked into this church, we'd be tempted to worship them. Like so many Christians uh, uh, did in the Bible when they saw an angel falling at their feet. And they said, get up, just like you, get up. You only worship God. And into this wonderful picture comes the most worthy person in all the realms there are. Jesus, the Christ. He is worthy. His worthiness gives us hope. And the theme of hope carries on in verse 8. I love this little detail that you could easily miss. They take off their crowns and the 24 elders fall down before the, the, the lamb. Then it says, each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. I love that little detail in verse 8. This is such a wonderful moment that every prayer that's been prayed, and of course it's particularly about those who are being persecuted in the the end times, but actually I believe that there's a lesson for all of us, that our prayers are collected up by God and held held so not one of them tips over the edge, not one of them is lost. It's so easy for us as Christians, isn't it, to despair to despair of what's happening, to look at our lives and say, where is God? Why is nothing happening? God's purposes seem to have been thwarted. But there is a worthy one who has taken that scroll and who has opened it, and God's purposes are working out. If you can't see it, that just means you can't see it. It doesn't mean that God is not doing what God does, which is what God does. He is the one who's seated on the only throne, Everyone else is under him. His son is able to enact his purposes for us. Every prayer is held in a bowl in heaven. Not one of our prayers has fallen to the ground. Not one of your prayers has ever hit the ceiling. Not one of your prayers has been forgotten. Not one of your prayers has ever been misheard by God. Not one of your prayers has whispered so quietly, so desperately, that God went, pardon, I missed that. God was never too busy to not listen Everyone has been collected. Everyone is precious. And that scroll reminds us that God will work for the good of every one of us. Whether we know it, this side of death or not. Jesus is not just worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy, therefore, to trust with our very lives. The third theme is the theme of victory. Why is Jesus uh, qualified to take this scroll from God the Father? Because he's conquered. We read in verse 5 again, he's conquered death. 
He conquered at the resurrection, not just his own death, but death for all who would trust in him. He conquered the devil. The devil was dealt a killer blow. He will one day, at the end of Revelation, be thrown into a fiery lake of sulfur and will be killed. And he will be destroyed forever and ever. Amen. He defeated sin. It lost its hold on all of us. When we say, I can't stop myself, you can. Because Christ has broken the chain and the pain and the power of sin. He's victorious. The end of all things belongs to Christ, Revelation tells us, not to darkness. And in verse 9, we see uh, the theme of redemption. They sing a new song. Love it. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The theme in heaven there is one of ransom. Christ came to ransom us, to buy us back. He owns us. We're his. And we could not belong to anyone better. We're redeemed and set free by our worthy saviour. And then in verse 10, we see a theme of future. They go on to sing, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our Lord, that serve our God, and they will reign on earth. How wonderful that we then get this wonderful picture that when Christ returns, we as his people will reign with him on earth forever and ever and ever. When his kingdom finally comes, we won't just simply be spectators of it, but actively a part of it. I find that quite exciting. It's like Genesis chapter 1, but done properly. (laughs) Without the fall, we will rule with Christ, reign with him forever and ever and ever. Chapter 5 of Revelation shows us that we can have hope because of who Jesus is, because of what he did, and what he's done for us, and what he will do one day. And so why does any of that matter this morning? We've just had eight weeks doing our course, Love Your Church. And that's why what I've just talked about matters. Because the church is never going to be perfect this side of heaven. It will always be a fractured, fragile, broken collection of people who get it wrong every other day, who get on each other's nerves, who don't forgive as quickly as they should, who criticize, who say things they shouldn't, who gossip. We'll always be those things. Boy, do we need to realize what our real role is. We're not just to be here to put up with each other. We are here as God's people to take the glory of Revelation chapter 5 and shine it as brightly as we can. Those themes of hope and worthiness and victory and redemption and a future are not just for us to talk about. They're for a dying world to know properly. The church has the most important role to say to them outside who are dying in their sin that Christ has overcome and they can have everlasting life. And so whether you're on the tea and coffee rotor, or you help at youth club or Haley, or whether you're just really good at looking after other people in the church, whether you're good at sharing your faith, none of it is unimportant. All of it has an important part of God's plan. Church is the hope of the world, because we know the one who is the light of the world. We are a light on a hill. We are a city that cannot be shut out. We are the lights that people need to see. And so after eight weeks of thinking about how to love our church, please don't dismiss it. Please don't go back to whatever we might have been before. Please don't just go back to coming on a Sunday and going home again. 
Please take it seriously. Please love each other more than you've ever loved each other before. Please serve Christ here before you serve him perhaps anywhere else. Please share your faith with each other and encourage each other and bring each other forward. Please don't ever criticize. Please don't ever put anyone down in this building. Build each other up all the time. If you're old or mentor the young, if you're younger, encourage the old. Step out in your faith, develop your gifts, serve Christ. He is coming soon. And he will ask us, what did you do? And if we say, Lord, we took your light and we dampened it because we rowed internally. And he will say, I won't tell you what he'll say, I don't know. But I know what I want him to say, which is, well done, good and faithful servant. We want Jesus, when he sees us as a church, to say, well done. Not only did you love each other passionately, and people were so attracted, they came in off the street, but you served me. He's here because of you. She's here because of you. They're there because of you. That person's there because of you. That's our job. So when we say love our church, it's because really we love them. And we start by loving each other. Let's just spend a moment or two in prayer. Father, we just commit everything to you, Lord. We think of Revelation chapter 5, Lord, all of that book. And Lord, it's so incredible. It's so hard to understand. It's so amazing. Lord, often we don't even go there. But Lord, if we were to peel back the reality that we take for granted, we would see, Lord, a reality so glorious, so incredible. Lord, that we would fall on our knees. If we had a proper glimpse of your glory, oh Jesus, we would give everything up for you. Even our lives, we would think nothing of it. So Lord, I simply pray, not for rotors at church, that's not what this is about, but Lord, that every single one of us would just know you better. That Lord, we would see you for who you really are, a conquering, risen king. That Lord, we would give our lives to you again. And maybe you want to do that right now. Maybe pray with me. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Lord Jesus, I recommit my life to you. Lord, I I repent of the things I've done that I shouldn't. I repent of them. I repent of the, the words that have come out of my mouth. I repent of where my eyes have looked. I repent of what I've used my privilege and my money for. I repent of it all, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you've invited us into your throne room and you've given us a glimpse of what's to come. May we be found worthy to be your servants. And Lord, we just lift all this to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.